Be a part of KPFT's Summer Sizzle Fund Drive now at 713-526-5738. Become a sustaining member to pick up our latest t-shirt and help us achieve our goal to raise $75,000 this month. Thanks for your support and for listening to 90.1 KPFT Houston. Wonderful music put together to make you feel a little better and sometimes it can make you feel great. Wide open spaces Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. The music is always flowing. And it's free for as long as you want it to be. 90.1 KPFT Houston. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio. This is a discussion on all our children, public policy, and how we do as a city and a community when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas youth. Each week, we aim to fill the same 60 minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life of our children. And today we have myself, I'm Claire Dutre, and... Becky Stefania. We do. And we have some great guests today, Becky. Do we not? Yeah, we do. Um, And of course, uh, we have our regular segments, uh, like Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, Mm -hmm. Date of the Day, which today teaser number is 58%. Any guesses? I have the worst guesses to exist, but uh, I don't know. 58% of... Actually, I'm going to go the other way. Teachers deserve a 58% raise. That's a good one. Times seven. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did not expect that. Um, But yeah, good good, good guess. Um, I'm also going to take a guess. Uh, 58% of Texas children um, do 60 minutes of play. That's a good one. Is it? Do you remember <laughs> when Nickelodeon used to shut off for an hour on Kids Worldwide Day of Play? Yeah, the whole, it was for an hour. I, I oh, remember, it must have been the whole day. Yes, I remember I would do my hour and I'd be like, I'm here. <laughs> Jokes would, on me, it's all day. <laughs> I, would, I was a little, a little lazy child. I got outside a little bit, but when it happened, I would just go to Disney Channel and revert to someone else who's not encouraging me to go outside that's, a, that's very smart of you too so no well i, don't, I need the loopholes like you know? i needed my shows i had a schedule <laughs> and they were breaking my routine but get outside encourage your kids to be outside with hydration of All course right. uh do you want to talk about our other guests for today i do we have some exciting guests we have dr christopher kuleska i'm gonna make sure i pronounce that right when he's on he's a scholar in child health policy from rice university and we're going to be talking about some social determinants of health and education my favorite topic and then we'll have ben wormund i believe i hope i'm pronouncing his name is right as well we're killing it um he is a washington correspondent for the houston chronicle and the san antonio express news um his recent article was the um exclusive texas troopers told to push children into the rio grande um and then we'll have linda corchado our director for the immigrations network here at children at risk she'll be joining us to ask him questions as well yeah that'll be a very good conversation um an important one to bring light to and make sure that we're doing the best for all children that are trying to come into our state and not pushing them out, as he reported. We also have Stephen Wu. He's the organizing and policy director for Worry Juntos, our favorites here in Houston. And he's going to be talking about different language barriers in children and how policy can help elevate those barriers. Not elevate, sorry, take them down. We do not want to build them up anymore. (laughs) Let's take the barriers down. And next, uh, we'll have, or after uh, Stephen, we'll have Sophia and Willis Johnson um, to talk about the North Texas event. Um, and she is a nominee, I believe, for our 
Hold Accolades? Up. Yeah. No, wait. No. Hold up. Sorry. Interrupted. Beep, beep, beep. They are the chairs for our North, North Texas event. They, they're the best. They, uh, Sophia is founder and president of ABI, and Willis Johnson is CEO and founder of JBJ Marketing. Um, they both drive their passion and want to support car and we're going to talk to them a little bit about that sorry a little bug in my throat but these are some great guests as we always do but to keep us and all of the great shows before and after on the air you have to pledge and becky what is the number that they could call to make this support uh it is 713-526-5738 and i believe you press one and you'll be connected to make a donation of your choice I was going to say two. Two is to talk to us, which we'll be happy to chat and have your input for thumbs up, thumbs down. But something exciting about Pledge Month or Pledge Week is right now for anyone that starts a sustaining pledge, there will be a $50 match. So you're helping KPFT times two. And there's a summer sizzle drive right now in partnership with Head Start that I'm trying to make sure I get right. But any $1,000 donated to KPFT during this drive, they will donate a backpack filled with school supplies to a student at the Head Start Center, which is super important. We love children. We love supporting children. Whatever you choose to donate, $5 or $150 for every $1,000 KPFT hits, a backpack goes to a student in need, which is pretty awesome. All right, let's head to Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Let's see. Today the topic is should parents charge their 18 to 24 opportunity youth um, is an age for that. Um, should they charge their children rent? They are those ages. This is really interesting to me because I read it before we started and I didn't even know that there were parents charging their children rent. And maybe my parents are a little too generous to myself and my brothers when we go home <laughs> and stay a couple of weeks. But what do you think as a young adult? You know what? I am 23 and I still live at home. Uh, I am also a Latina and it is very, very common for you to just stay at home until you get married. Yeah. Um, Unless you're like have a job abroad or far away, but I know for my sister, she moved out like at thirty, and my parents like had a freak out, and my mom was like, "Where are you, you going?" She's <laughs> like, "I'm thirty, I need to leave." Yeah, I, I know a few friends that still live at home. I don't think any of them are charged rent, um, and they're saving they're saving quite the coin to move out and be gain some financial literacy and responsibility are you are you charged rent if you're comfortable with answering? i don't i don't charge i don't get charged rent but i do contribute to um some of the bills um so i know i pay the wi-fi bill or the internet bill i also help pay the water bill mm. and other stuff i help pay for groceries kind of considered so, rent you're you're paying your part okay. um yeah this is interesting i wonder if parents hit a system and also 18 to 24, I feel like it's a large gap because what if it's a gap before entering college or starting a career and if there's a sustained system, but there's different pros and cons. You want to give us some of the reasoning? Some of the pros are charging rent can teach young adults about financial responsibility and budgeting um, or respect for resources when young adults contribute financially to their living situations they become more conscious of energy, water, and other resources, so you become more of a sustainable human being. Um, And then there's a lot of cons as well. Um, So charging rent might create a financial burden that interferes with ability to focus on establishing careers um, or pursuing higher education. Yeah, it's. I didn't even think about kind of how much you could prepare someone for independence in this and set your child up for success once moving out um, starting their own life but yeah it can I can only imagine if I went home and my parents had a system it would be weird (laughs) in our relationship if it wasn't something they set uh, at the beginning but I I don't know if you if you would like to give some input it might not be up yet but it will be up soon on our Instagram we have a poll for thumbs up thumbs down so you can go share if you are thumbs up thumbs down and then up next we'll have Dr. Christopher Caluza and um 
will be a switching out. Dr. Jamie Freeney will be taking my place, and she'll have her great commentary and great We're questions. Excited! Awesome. With Doctor for Doctor for Doctor Christopher, is it Kuleza? Kuleza, that's perfect. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And Doctor Kuleza is a scholar in child health policy at Rice University, and we are so excited to have you on today to talk about some social determinants of health in our education system. Sure, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, and I do want to give a formal introduction as well to Dr. Jamie Freeney. I'm so blessed to have two doctors to talk about this. So, Dr. Freeney, welcome. And Thank how are you? you. I'm wonderful. Excited to be here. This is, this is great. Another great show. So, thanks <laughs> yeah. for having me. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you both, and we're going to talk a little bit about some determinants of health. Dr. Kaleza, can you give an overview generally of what this might look like, and then we can dive into some specifics. Sure. What we're really looking at are the non-medical influencers of health outcomes. So they're the conditions in which people are born, the way they grow, the way they work, the way they live, their age, and the wider set of forces and systems that shape the conditions of their daily life. And that can have a really interesting way for the which that it interacts with public policy. Public policy has a, a very important role to play in the way that uh, individuals are impacted and the way that that impacts their health. Yeah. Can you shine light on what metrics you're looking at specifically and how teachers and schools can support a whole student in delving into these determinants? Sure. So, for example, some of the, the major ones that are typically looked at are things like uh, their safety within their neighborhood, their access to food, um, also whether or not um, what types of um, experiences they have within their home as well. So what does their family life look like? And generally speaking, how do they interact with, their, uh, with the physical environment? So um, there are, there's been new attention to this, particularly in the past two decades, and schools have really tried looking at what's known as the whole child, with the idea being that if you were to tackle uh, some of the places for which uh, students need greater attention when it comes to the social determinants of health, that you'll see an improvement in their academic performance and their overall well-being. So I have a question for you um, around built environment. So we know that there are many contributing factors, like you mentioned, that are non-medical, that really have to do with the built environment, community resources, grocery stores, health centers, clinics. So what are your recommendations on addressing the structural needs that really um, children don't have any say-so in, and it's something that they're born into? So what would you, what are your suggestions or recommendations for um, improving some of these systems, such as housing and um, gentrification and the lack of uh, all these, you know, fast food restaurants in, in particular neighborhoods um, versus not having a grocery store. Um, so what are, your, what are your recommendations around that? Sure. So that's a really good question. So when I, when I kind of think of built environment when it comes to children in schools, I think of it in two different ways. One is for which the, and the neighborhood for which they live. So thinking about, you know, whether or not they live in an area that's residential, whether or not they live in an area that has mixed use, whether or not the area for which they live has parks and whether they're able to walk to school. Um, those things that are able to support their social environment and also their safety. But then I also think about, too, the physical school itself. 
because research has shown that the way you construct a school and whether or not the school is up to date, whether or not it has resources, also plays a very important role in the way for which uh, kids can interact with, with their uh, environment. So the way that I would think about it with, in terms of school is, schooling is, is the school up to date? Is it in a, a, a good shape to be conducive to a, a proper learning environment? And also, is it, is it interacting with students in such a way that's best for them in the way that they know how to learn? So what we're finding, like particularly now, in many school districts is they're reshaping the way that schools are built so that they effectively act as community centers. So some of the work that we're doing um, here at the Baker Institute is we're looking at the full-service community school model where a school isn't just looked at as a place where kids go to just learn throughout the day. It's a place where families can also interact with the school and get certain resources that they might need. So, for example, receiving um, food if uh, their family has uh, problems with uh, getting access to food or also um, programs for parents, be that in like ESL or for professional development. Um, so it, you really have to get very, um, very broad in the way that you think about school and in the way that it, it interacts with the community too, in order to get the kind of outcomes uh, that would be beneficial to everyone. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit, I think we've spoken on this before and our radio show, I almost said podcast, but I guess it is both, um, for safety and the definition, because we speak a lot to architecture firms and they talk about how schools emphasize no windows, bulletproof glass, um, ceiling, ceilings up and rised and windows high up if there are those in the classroom. And that's not necessarily promoting safety. Um, and it's just making children feel like they're in pretty rough environments. And so how do you, in these schools that build community, especially in the full-service models, see safety exemplified in community rather than um, putting up barriers? No, that's a really good question. So when we're thinking about safety, it's not just, for example, many schools are now, for example, moving to having one entryway for students. And as you're saying, finding ways to reduce the sociability uh, and the uh, interaction between students, that would not be something that I would suggest. Rather, in terms of safety, we have to think about things such as lighting, uh, think about things such as crosswalks, making sure that um, that the the students are able to have a safe commute to campus and that it's easily walkable, for example. So when we're thinking about safety, it's those things that aren't just necessarily within the way that we construct the building or the way that we think about security. But you're right, it is a much broader concept. And um, it really, too, in any way that we think about safety, we have to think about a way for which that will improve the sociability of the students and be able to create those neighborhood networks and build resilience of the particular area for which that uh, school is in. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I love the connection between when a school is implanted in the community, but also has that intentional outreach in the neighborhood infrastructure and making sure that they can impact um, in the whole community rather than just the four walls of their building. Right. And one thing, too, that I, I should note as well, um, we're in a little bit of a in an interesting place right now after COVID-19. So many of the, the community improvement projects are funded through bonds, right? So voters are asked to support a, a particular bond um, within a school district um, to be able to, to pay for some of these capital projects. And we've, it, it's been a little bit interesting because after COVID-19, we've started seeing a trend where many of these projects that would go to support uh, construction of either, um, you know, new school facilities or just general um, capital, um, it, they used to pass by 80%, 90%. Now, after COVID-19, with property values increasing, that's going down to approximately 50%. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting, you know, whether or not um, you know, voters should pass the bond or not. You know, that's really on a, on a case-by-case basis, and that's up to, you know, up to the individual voters. Um, but when it comes to the way that schools are sort of thinking about this, it is becoming more difficult in some cases for them to, to think about 
investing in the built environment only because um, the, the elections are going in different ways than they were previously. Yeah, it's, it's worrisome to see education and children and community become divisive. But I have, I have hopes that we'll see a route. And we thank you so much for the work you're doing um, to help improve outcomes for our children. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. You flip the script for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look down. Because if you dare, you see the glare of everyone you burn just to get there. It's coming back around. And I keep my side of the street clean. You My pennies made your crown Trick me once, trick me twice Don't you know the cash ain't the only price It's coming back around We have two guests on the line with us now. We have Ben Werman with Washington's who is Washington's correspondent for the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News, as well as Linda Cochada, our director of the Children's Immigration Network. Ben, are you with us, and how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And then Linda as well, just checking in if you're with us. I'm here. Perfect. So we're excited. Ben, if you want to give us some kind of context and knowledge around the conversation and we can talk about it but you wrote or told the story of what texas troopers were told to do at the rio grande valley um right yeah i've been um covering uh governor greg abbott's operation lone star which is a border security initiative um that the state has undertaken it's a 10 billion dollar um security initiative that includes a lot of um, you know, razor wire that's been placed along the border, um, and uh, the state's been arresting migrants as they come across and pressing trespassing, uh, uh, um, pressing charges for trespassing against them. Um, we got a copy of a, an internal uh, email that a, a trooper at the Department of Public Safety sent, raising um, a series of of concerns about what he had seen working. Um, down in Eagle Pass, uh, and yeah, that included um, w- one of the incidents was being told uh, to push families, including uh, small children, back into the into the Rio Grande. Um, the DPS has said that that was a misunderstanding. That's not actually what they were being ordered to do, um, but they are investigating sort of the, that allegation and, and others that were in the uh, email. Yeah. Can you? Oh, go ahead, Linda. Thanks, Ben. I mean, I am so grateful for your reporting. I'm also an immigration attorney. I'm based in El Paso. um, And this just reminds me of dealings with CBP and how it's so difficult to have transparency about policies. You know, you mentioned that officials responded and said there was a misunderstanding. And you also did some reporting just recently on family separations that seems to contradict written policies. What's your experience been like when it comes to accountability and transparency about, you know, how Operation Lone Star is being implemented across the border? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good point about the, uh, the family separation policy, I think, is kind of... Um, illustrates the transparency question where there has been, uh, you know, written and repeatedly stated policy, even by the head of DPS, uh, that the agency would not separate um, family units and would keep them together. But, um, you know, we were 
uh, we did some reporting that showed that they uh, last month have started uh, detaining fathers um, on these trespassing charges and arresting the fathers and then um, sending the rest of the family to transferring them to federal custody, um, effectively separating the families. Um, and we haven't really been able to get an answer from DPS on if it's a shift in policy, um, even if it's ongoing at this point. It seems like um, just from my discussions with attorneys down there, it, it happened um, quite a bit last month and, and has maybe slowed at this point. But yeah, just kind of uh, gets back to that question of transparency. And it's a little bit unclear what some of these policies are and what, um, you know, might actually be happening. I mean, it seems like the the situation is sort of like uh, ever evolving um, with this. I mean, a lot of what's happened recently is part of sort of an escalation of Operation Lone Star that's been um, centered in Eagle Pass. Um, for a while, they were uh, arresting uh, migrants for trespassing in a public park. The way they were able to do that was from a a document that the mayor signed, essentially claiming that he owned the park, which um, was not voted on in a city council meeting or anything like that. It was sort of done behind closed doors, um, which, again, gets back to the, the sort of transparency or, or lack of transparency about what's happening. Right. I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of family advocates, are concerned and they see your reporting and think, this is great. These policies must have stopped already, right? Um, you know, I, I experienced that with family separations and their zero tolerance. A lot of persons who were conservative or moderate or, or really stayed out of the conversation actually were part of the conversation and said, okay, well, this is where we draw the line. And I think drawing the line similarly is sending, you know, kids who are dehydrating and are in urgent need of humanitarian aid back to the river, right? What, what would you say to these people who are, who are looking to more accountability and thinking, well, this must have already stopped, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is that it, it hasn't stopped. I mean, the, the, um, the governor has been pretty, uh, stood pretty firm behind um, the whole initiative. Um, he was just down in Eagle Pass earlier this week, touting it and talking about the work they're doing. Um, like I said, I mean, the state has pushed back on some of the specific um, instances or sort of allegations that have been raised in these, including the orders to push children. But but they have, um, you know, acknowledged that they don't give water to everyone, which is another allegation that was in there. And there have been an increase in, in injuries on the razor wire that is uh, is strung for miles along the the river. So there are some, um, you know, some instances here that that have been alarming to to people that are not, um, it's not leading to an immediate change, at least. Can either of you speak to um, any of the policies or accountability, or even if there are any repercussions when um, family or when individuals are transported from the border to other states in the United States? And um, a second component of that question is when they're being transported, are you aware of if the whole family is being transported together or if there could be also some separation in that piece? Uh, in terms of the state busing, um, I believe that they are, I, I, I mean, I, I can't say in every case, but I believe that they are, um, uh, they have to say that they want to to accept the ride to another location, and I, I am not aware of any separations that are happening there. The separations that I've, I've um, been able to, to confirm are the ones that are happening, like right when uh, migrants are, are arriving here and are uh, either being arrested, as the, the, the fathers are in this case, or being sent to uh, Border Patrol to, to enter the federal immigration system. Okay. Linda, any, any thoughts on that? We, we just saw something pre- re- recently in the news where there were a bus of, of individuals taken to, I believe, California. Um, any thoughts on, on or any awareness of what, what happens in, in those situations? I mean, it's happening across the board, even in El Paso. Like our goal, you know, even as immigration advocates, is we want persons to reach their final destination and not stay stuck in the border or in detention or certainly with CBP or, or these troopers. 
Um, but the problem is when that they're being forcefully moved to different parts where there is no coordination with those receiving governments. Um, and we did see in the news just recently that one minor was on one of these buses and actually died um, through that transit. So it, it's certainly not even humane, it seems like, the conditions that, that these migrants are being placed in when they're being, being, when they're being bussed out. Yeah, even seeing it again and again is jarring. And um, just as you were saying earlier, Ben, just seeing the governor go around and speak on these initiatives that are incredibly harmful to immigrant families and immigration policies as a um, positive thing is is harmful narrative and not driving good rhetoric across our state. But we thank you both for the work you do, and we hope to see some turnaround and see some stronger community and pushback against what's happening. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. movement mm, yeah so that like houston would outdo all the other cities like we're talking about mute, beyonce audience yeah, <laughs> yeah so during the mute part of the concert i feel like houston should have at least like an eight count movement just to outdo right it's her right. hometown right like right. we we have to prepare and be thinking about these things they're they're, they're important. <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know when beyonce says everybody on mute during her song, you go on mute for as long as Literally. you can. And we need to beat Atlanta for the that. The whole one. entire stadium goes quiet. It's pretty it's amazing. Crazy. It's an amazing feeling when you're in it. And that was a crowd surfaced thing, wasn't it? She did not institute that. No. Um she she did somewhat just by pausing. Mm-hmm. And so when she pauses, it's it's kind of the like okay, pauses. the world pauses. <laughs> so I think there was some intention there, but it's become a competition. I don't know mm-hmm. that she was, you know, intentioning her intention was to make it a she knows it's a competition but yeah we're houston so we're gonna we're, we're gonna win, win. <laughs> <laughs> but layla's calling in from california sorry layla you will not beat us on the mute challenge um but we're excited <laughs> oh, to no. hear about houston can have it <laughs> <laughs> we will have beyonce on the show we know we're gonna get her on um from date of the day so she could talk to you layla um, i would i would love that she can replace me she can take my job she can do whatever she likes <laughs> Of course. Layla, we talked a little bit about 58%. I said 58% meant that all teachers deserve a 58% raise times seven. But we're excited to hear what it actually means, uh, unless that's the truth. I mean, that is the truth. That is not the number I had in mind, but that doesn't mean it can't be a both and. Correct. So before I get into the 58%, it's important to note that Texas actually has four of the top 50 cities in the entire United States that have the most green space per capita. So Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston are all in the top 50 cities with the most green space per capita, which is great. That's wonderful. Um, The 58% comes in in kind of our womp womp moment where only about 58% of Houstonians can easily get to green space on foot. Um, So tons of green space but not very evenly distributed across the city. What does this mean when someone doesn't have access to green space? Well, um, speaking as someone who really kind of doesn't, um, it means that they pathologically go out on the weekend seeking it out. But I think in this instance, it's really more of a question of the the link between mental health and um, and green space in cities. So there's been research to demonstrate that 
having access to green space, natural space, is really good psychologically for the citizens of the city. Um, so that means that, you know, the toll of living somewhere where you're completely surrounded by concrete, it, it weighs heavily on the psyche, according to research. Absolutely. I was able to do a um, research, qualitative research study with about 100 young black boys across the city of Houston and their top number one consistent ask was for recreational spaces and open spaces outside that are safe. So can you speak mm-hmm. to maybe why we know that it, we, we you just said the connection to mental health. We know that's what kids want. Why aren't we seeing more efforts in the area of creating pathways, bike paths, walking trails to get to these green spaces? Well, that's a complicated answer because I think there's a lot of different layers there. I mean, I think in some cities it has to do with the the value of land, and sometimes it's simply not the city's priority to have protected green space on highly valuable real estate. Um, In other instances, there's like layers of politics where people maybe don't want to put in a green space because they think that the way that it'll be used in the neighborhood isn't appropriate. So in in neighborhoods that, you know, are are considered high crime or they're they're devalued, um, they're not invested in in the city, you know, you'll you'll have people saying they don't want to put green space in because of how the green space may be used by people in that area. Um, So there's a lot of different layers there. There's, you know potentially some classism and racism at play, but also just in general, um, some, some land value issues at play as well. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's true. And even wanting to, we worked with a school in a neighborhood that there were no parks in that, in about a two mile zone. And it took about a year, almost two years pretty much for, um, and this is through the community resiliency project in Hiram Clark, for a K through eight school, Billy Reagan K through eight just got a new spark park. We worked with the city of Houston and we still had to raise a significant amount of money. But what um, the result was, uh, or it resulted in an outdoor classroom, a beautiful playground that included play um, spaces for children with disabilities. Um, but through that process, I just recognize that it's it's lengthy it takes a lot of of there's a lot of red tape and things of that nature and then you also um we were able to the the children the students selected what it looked like what they wanted but there was a a lot of conversation around how are we going to get the money to do this and so um can you speak to any of the efforts or any recommendations for maybe community people that want to start advocating for um green space use parks or um, things that, you know, community gardens, things that would be appropriate or helpful for the community? I mean, as far as the process of actually getting, um, you know, building political power in the city, I mean, I can't, I can't even begin um, <laughs> to, to speak to all the different levels of community sure. organizing that it takes. I mean, I think I can maybe speak to um, firms that are responsible, you know, landscape architecture firms, people who would be responsible for implementing some of these things definitely need to have an eye to the community in terms of what's needed, how people want to use the space to make sure that these spaces are being used adequately, because I think sometimes what happens is a space gets put in without an ear to how the community wants to use it, and, you know, maybe the the wrong types of sports fields are put in, or whatever it may be, and it doesn't get used, and then the city um, sees it as not um, something that's valued, and then over time, you know, it gets repurposed. Gotcha. Um, but I, I don't have a ton of experience in what it takes to get something um, from, you know, an, an undeveloped lot into a community garden. But I imagine that it is a, a lengthy and involved process. Sure, yeah. sure. We thank you, Layla. And I would love to continue this conversation on using spaces and, as you said, for children to grow in community. Um, but we're excited to have you and possibly Beyonce on next week. Yes. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs>
We are excited to move on with Stephen Wu, organizer and policy director at our favorite Worry Juntos. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing today? We are good and excited to talk about different language barriers that our children in Texas face and how policies can help reshape and lift them. So can you give us a little bit, um, I know we had Rui Juntos on again, but just so you can give some context on the work you do organization-wide and then what you're doing for children and language barriers. Yes, absolutely. Um, number one, really happy to, to be here in this space. So we, as Woody Juntos, are an immigrant rights organization. We're based in the Spring Branch part of Houston and Harris County. And we say that we're trying to advance the full safety, agency, and vibrancy of Asians and all immigrants across this state. And we do this kind of work uh, three primary ways. The first is beating people's direct needs with our in-language social service navigation. So for any community member, um, you know, families, including their children, who need help applying for benefits like Medicaid, Medicare, SNAP, uh, we provide uh, very much from beginning to end assistance of helping people understand how to navigate these forms, applications, the whole process, and then to the end where they actually get and hopefully secure those benefits for them and their families. Uh, from there, we also want to make sure that those who are living or enduring through policy decisions have the ability to make changes that they want to see happen themselves. So we have base building and organizing where we educate community members on how these systems work for them to connect with other community members who are facing similar challenges. And then finally, the third uh, area is the advocacy portion. We train people on how to testify, and then we mobilize them for opportunities to do just that, and most importantly, to do it in language. Um, so clearly you can see that language access is something that is weaving through all the three different uh, areas from our organization, um, and is a very, very important aspect to, to our work. Um, and mostly because we've seen that in Harris County, the city of Houston, and in Texas, a lot of the services that our people need are not in the languages that our community member speaks. Um, one clear example is that we serve a lot of Korean community members here in Houston, and rarely do we ever see any applications for benefits or even as simple as alerts for emergencies in these specific languages. And it's uh, for us something that we know can be fixed because we have seen other cities and other states step up to the plate to uh, implement and enact really good language access policies that we hope to bring here uh, to Texas as well. Can you speak to a policy that um, was was implemented recently and or not necessarily recently, but speak to a policy mm -hmm. and the, the impacts, like the positive impacts it's had so that we can um, paint us a picture of how important and, and how impactful your work is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I will say, and being, being fully transparent, we were trying to find those kind of, okay, we've, you know, some, certain places have introduced and, and implemented language access plans. What were the results? I don't think we have found that uh, kind of information quite yet, though I do believe there are researchers uh, who are trying to look into the like tangible, quantifiable impacts from the policies. What I can say is, after going through a lot of different plans that other cities have enacted, one that we really, really thought was a very good model was the one in Los Angeles. And this is something that was only recent. Uh, they, they kind of updated their approach to language access at the city level. And one aspect that we're hoping to model here in Harris County, uh, the city of Houston or in, in the state of Texas, is to have this kind of advisory board where community groups and organizations and individuals are also at the same table as the policymakers in shaping what the language access plan requirements are, what the evaluation process looks like, how do we improve it, and so that you know if we as the community don't agree with certain aspects of the plan on how it's performing, we can tell them like, hey, we can't move forward unless we address these certain issues. So basically, giving community stakeholdership and the agency to provide guidance on how these plans are conducted. I think one good example of why that's important is there are certain aspects of our 
services, we use Google Translate. I'm pretty sure everyone has used Google Translate to help with like one-on-one conversations. But when you try to communicate very important information, and I'll use hurricanes as a prime example since we're right now in the middle of hurricane season, Google Translate, we found, um, I'm trying to find the statistics right now, that there was a study done by UCLA back in 2021 medical center where 25% of the information provided in statements were mistranslated mm. or lost in communication when you used Google Translate. So that's a quarter of the, of the message that you're trying to send. And during a very you know urgent uh, matter, let's say as a hurricane, you need to make sure that all your words are conveyed, conveyed in a very timely and effective manner. Uh, Google Translate also uses, uh, from our experience, uh, the languages of where the current governments of those countries exist. And as we know, language evolves, and typically language evolves with different government regimes coming into place. We have a large Vietnamese population and community here in Houston. A lot of them are South Vietnamese refugees that came after the war. That country has changed since they left or since they were forced out. And the language has also subsequently changed as well. And Google Translate uses what they currently speak Mm. in terms of their translations. But if you try to show what that says to a South Vietnamese refugee here in Houston, they will not only not believe you or ignore you, they will think that you have ulterior motives with your, you know, messaging. So that kind of cultural competency, we don't believe can come through Google Translate. You will need somebody who knows the community to help with this kind of work. That's such a great point. Yeah. Even thinking of in schools, I know we spoke a little bit about um, something as simple as a truancy notice or um, anything Mm -hmm. sent home to parents, like you said. And I understand it takes staffing and intention. uh, But in the quickness and hasteness, I know we use talking points, which just automatically translates Mm -hmm. to a home language. But like you said, if it's it would send me a message back. And even when it translated from their message, it was incoherent and it wasn't on the parent. It was probably because the message to them did not make sense. And so in that barrier, where is the momentum? Where can we build partnerships? Where can we um, kind of encourage the city and schools? Where's the gaps that we need to fill in order to get these barriers lifted? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm, I'm happy to say that part of our work this past year, we formed this collective called the Texas Language Justice Collective. We have now, I think, 17 plus uh, organizations based here in Houston and across Texas who are fighting to improve language access and language justice uh, throughout the state. Uh, part of that work is also internally. Uh, we want to make sure that we're practicing what we're preaching with our own internal meetings, that we have the language capabilities and guidance. Uh, but if you, you know, if, if there are folks who want to get plugged in, I would really encourage uh, y'all to, to, you know, see if you can join our efforts um, and, and and transforming Harris County and, and the city of Houston to be better. Um, we're, we've been creating policy memos. We've been having meetings with county commissioners. Uh, we're right now in the in the fiscal year 2024 budget cycle for Harris County. A lot of money <laughs> that's at play right now, and we're hoping that some of it can be allocated towards properly funding a language access plan. You just mentioned, like, this is not going to be free. <laughs> right. We need funding to, to, to make this wow. thing kind of happen. Um, and then I also want to uplift another amazing group. They're called Tikalak. Uh, they have been doing incredible, incredible language justice work in the city of Houston and Harris County for the past couple of years. Uh, they definitely live up to their values, and I would really recommend uh, you know, uh, searching them up and, and learning more about that work to, to get plugged into. What they, was that one more about, time? I believe, uh, Tikalak, it's spelled T-E-C-T-O-T-L. Thank you. And they are creating this really incredible report on language justice recommendations for the city and the county. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen, for what you're doing at Worry Juntos, as well as uh, making these strong connections. And we're excited to have you back and keep partnering with you on language justice in Harris County. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas, the coyotes wail along the trail. Deep in the heart of Texas, the rabbits rush around the brush. 
deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> we are back with our wonderful North Texas Hats Off Chairs and Child Advocates, Sophia and Willis Johnson. Are y'all with us today? Here. Awesome. Hello. We're excited to talk about your interest in the work we do at Children at Risk, but also just what drives your passion and what you value generally as two wonderful child advocates in Texas. Thank you for having us. Yeah, awesome. If you wanted to take the floor and start with, um, maybe you could start with the children at risk buckets, which I know expands a lot of children and family issues, but specifically what you're passionate about um, and who motivates you. Well, I yield to well, Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> I will say that um, Across the nonprofits that serve children, I'm interested in the entire spectrum. Um, boots on the ground, actually doing one-on-one advocacy. But what I love about children at risk is looking at systemic solutions for our children who are at risk. So a lot of what filters down at the ground level happens at the policy level and has to be proved with really, really comprehensive and accurate data. And I think that what we're seeing in Texas and the great needs, especially for children who are in poverty, is proven by the data. And being able to take that to the legislature, being able to take that to local officials and make the proof points that lead to change and reallocation of resources, um, areas of focus, seeing the most vulnerable target audiences are what is most important to me at that end of the spectrum, that work that needs to be done, Children at Risk is doing it. And that filters all the way down to um, other nonprofits that we're involved in where it is the one-on-one work of helping the individual student. Yeah, and Phyllis, what would you, what would you say to that? Well, I echo uh, Sophia's sentiments. But at the root of my passion is our children are our future. They are uh, the next generation. It's what our country will be about. And so it is important that we protect um, the valuable assets that this country is made upon. And so if we don't protect our children, which Children at Risk does do, um, we are doomed as a country. So I just have a passion for anyone uh, that's involved in protecting the next two or three generations. And so I'm excited about uh, working on this particular project and hopefully we can raise money and get people to be, to understand the significance of what children at risk uh, are about. And so uh, it's just my passion for kids in general. Yeah, I saw something recently with um, mainly the the climate happening right now, but encouraging those young adults and above to not have a doomsday mindset or um, be too disheartened by what we're seeing in a headline because that's ultimately what's catching the headlines. It's not the whole story, but also because there's right. children that still deserve to grow up and have fruitful, exciting lives. And I, I used to teach some. They're not children, babies. They're we're high schoolers, <laughs> but um, they're awesome. And I there are many advocates themselves, and I'm very – I'm hopeful for – the generation uprising and the children under them. I agree. That says a lot about your parenting, that they're mission-minded already, but I completely agree. I am a big reader of history, and every generation feels like, ugh, look at what's in front of us. This is terrible. And so I feel super optimistic, and in fact, I feel most optimistic when I'm with children this year. My company, we do it every year, but this summer we had interns, and 
to see the way that these young people work, their work ethic and their optimism and how they blend their work with social activism, I think that it gives me great hope as opposed to, like you said, the headlines, which are so readily available because we all have screens in front of our faces and someone wants our attention every two seconds. Yes. And it's a, um, it's really important, I think, too, that we focus on and recognize all of the assets and strengths in these generations that are coming. We've heard a lot more recently around generational patterns and generational trauma and all these things that are passed on through generations. And I, I think there's certainly um, something to say when it comes to strength and resilience and those things that are, that are being passed down. So hopefully, um, and I'm also seeing in this generation, a passion uh, for inclusivity, like they are, they are speaking out, they're speaking up and they are reaching out to resources when their primary resource didn't pan out. So they're, they're going to others to say, Hey, will you support this effort? So um, thank you all for, you know, just prioritizing um, our assets. And um, I, I really think the protection and the prioritization of our assets, assets, their, their whole wellness um, is, is truly key to a, a, a better future. Yeah. Well, I think Sophie and I are so supportive of this next these next generations. We celebrated um, one of our children's birthdays last night, and so we had three grandkids with us last night. And we just want everybody to have the opportunity to go to dinner, go to school, relax, and grow up to be a responsible adult. And that's why what children at risk, uh, what they stand for is so important because, again, as you said, if we don't protect our assets, our, our country is in, is in trouble. Right. Sophie and Willis, we are so very thankful for not only the work you do as partners and as advocates, but also as parents and grandparents, now that we're hearing that. And happy belated to to your young ones. So we are going to wrap up. Our time is short, but we look forward to continuing to have you all on in the future. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you so much. And that concludes today. We thank you so much for listening to Growing Up in America by Children at Risk. If you enjoyed our discussion, please tune in every Wednesday from 12 to 1. This is Claire Dutre and Dr. Jamie Freeney. See you all soon. With hopes that maybe I'll get a chance to see you when I close my eyes. I'm going out of my head, lost in the fairy tale. Can you hold my hands and be This is Hank Rubichek, producer of So What's Your Story on KPFT Houston, 90.1 on the dial, Houston's community station. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind, like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest, Uh-oh. or that time you forgot to roll up your windows in the car wash. Fantastic. Yeah, a remote control would have come in handy then. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Life doesn't come with a remote control. So you're on your own with the WASPs. You have the power to take control of prediabetes. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. You know, I grew up hearing that women are bad with money. But like many of you, I spent years paying bills, managing checking accounts, and taking care of my family. So, turns out, women are pretty good with money after all. 
And now I'm taking control of my financial future by saving for retirement. It's never too late to start, and there's a great website to help you. Check out WeSaySaveIt.org and jumpstart your retirement savings on your budget and your timeline. That's WeSaySaveIt.org, brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We are the boy band. Your tween made you see. We are the boy band. It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and 19. We are the boy band. 